So we're between teaching series. So I decided for the next two weeks, I'm going to sneak in a mini series entitled Foundations. Um, So let's pray before we launch in. Holy Spirit, as we open up the scriptures, would you reveal to us the person of Jesus? Would you remind us of our identity that's found in him? And would you inspire us as to what it means to be the church? We ask that you'd speak to us now through your word. And we pray this in your name. And all God's people said. So this mini teaching series, um, Foundations, we, we recognise that the ground beneath our feet has been shaken over the last couple of years. Everyone's talking about rebuilding. And as the people of God, um, there is a question, what are the foundations on which we are building as the church? So I want to take us back to the creed. We don't often say the creed here at KXC. But if we were to say the creed, what we'd say about our theological understanding of the church is that we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, Some of you are looking blankly at me. Um, But when we say the creed, that's what we say about our beliefs of the church. We are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We're going to say that together. You ready? We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I kind of semi-believed that you believed in that. So we're just going to give it one more try. We believe in dot, dot, dot. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Some of us are excited about that. Some of us less so. Um, So let me unpack that then. We believe in one. We are one church. We are united around the person of Jesus. So Paul, when he talks in his letter to the church in Ephesus about our unity in the spirit, you, you can guess which word he's, he's trying to emphasize. He says there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. What do you think the word is? One. It was an easy, easy answer, wasn't it? Like it doesn't take a scholar to understand that what Paul is trying to emphasize is our oneness as the church. That's why division in the church breaks the heart of God. That's why Jesus' final prayer before he ascended to be with the Father was that we might be one and reflect the oneness of God himself. So we are one. We are holy, which means we are set apart for God and set apart for his purposes. We're going to unpack that. We are Catholic, which means universal. We are the worldwide church. We gather on every continent, in every community, right? There's phenomenal diversity, and that diversity is possible because we are united around Christ. Think of Revelation chapter 7, a picture of the worship of heaven where you have every tribe, every tongue gathered around the throne. If you take away the throne, the lamb that's on the throne, suddenly the diversity falls apart. There can be radical diversity. There should be radical diversity in the church because there is unity around the person of Jesus. Every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity, demographic diversity, beautiful vision of diversity. And we are apostolic, which means we're missionary. But more than just being a missionary church, we're built on the foundations of the apostles. We don't get to reinvent our faith for this cultural moment. 
we receive the faith handed through the generations from the, the base, the foundation of the teaching of the apostles. So when we say apostolic, yes, we mean missionary, but more than that, we mean we are submitted to the scriptures, to the faith that we have received. So that's what we believe about church, but I want to focus on, on two of the foundations in the next two weeks. And um, The first one I want to focus in on is holy. What does it mean to be holy? So I'm entitling this talk, War of Desires, Loving Jesus Above All Else. Because the reality is when it comes to holiness, a lot of us experience the pursuit of holiness as an internal war of desires. Like beneath the surface, there are so many competing desires within us, right? The desire to be sexually fulfilled, the desire to be successful, the desire to accumulate wealth. You, you can sort of list the different desires going on beneath the, the bonnet in your life, right? But the pursuit of holiness means we put Jesus above all else. The way we manage our desires is that we order our desires and Jesus comes First, That's what holiness really means. When we talk about holiness, there tends to be sort of awkwardness and sort of nervousness in the church. And we tend to think of like purity and moral perfection and following the commands of Jesus. And absolutely, that's a part of holiness. But I would describe that as the fruit of holiness. Those are the manifestations of a holy life. But what is the root of holiness? We know the fruit. What is the root of holiness? It is undivided devotion to Jesus. So listen to these words from Chuck DeGroat, um, a theologian with the most incredible name. He says this, we need to reimagine holiness for our cultural moment, not through the lens of perfectionism, but through the lens of our utter oneness with God. The root of holiness is wholehearted Devotion, undivided devotion to Jesus. If you were to ask the Jewish community about their understanding of holiness, they would take you to one key passage, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is known as the Shema. This is a prayer that the Jewish community pray day in, day out. Perhaps the most formative of all the prayers the Jewish community pray says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There we go. The Lord is one. The Lord is undivided in his devotion towards us. Let me say that again. I want that to sink in from head to heart. The Lord is undivided in his devotion towards us. So what is our response to his undivided devotion? It is to be undivided in our devotion to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength, with every part of who you are. That's the root of holiness, right? Just make it really clear. That is the root of holiness. What's the fruit of holiness? It goes on. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up and when you take your social media feed. That's the message translation. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates because these commands are a pathway to human flourishing. Can you get what the author is trying to say? It's like, you need to go after these commandments because they bring life. But the very foundation is undivided devotion to 
God. The root leads to the fruit. Jesus builds on this, this prayer of the Shema. He's basically asked the question, what's the most important commandment? Now, the commandment's about human flourishing. So when he's asked the question, what's the most important commandment? He's basically asked, what is the absolute key to human flourishing? This is the question everyone's asking and and wrestling with. What's the key to living life? Well, Jesus says, easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, undivided devotion to God. That's the key to human flourishing. You see this in the Ten Commandments. Now, you've got the three commandments that I would describe as the root, and then the seven commandments that are the fruit, right? So the first three are about protecting your undivided devotion to God. So have no other gods before me. Do not make any images. In other words, no idolatry. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Those three are about worship. If you neglect the first three, everything falls apart. The other seven, you know, which are key, that's following the way of God. But the first three are the foundation. If you extract the first three from the list, what happens? You get spiritual formation without undivided devotion. You get spiritual formation without wholehearted worship and spiritual formation without undivided devotion is a spirituality empty of power and it's empty of joy this is one of my concerns is for a younger generation discovering the spiritual disciplines if you haven't got undivided devotion in place first they're empty they're devoid of power they're devoid of joy Spiritual formation without undivided devotion is basically the kingdom without the king, which is secularism, right? It's fascinating to me to watch secularism basically discover spiritual disciplines but extract Christ from the spiritual disciplines. This is what mindfulness is really about. Everyone in the church is suddenly discovering mindfulness, unaware that Christians have been practicing that kind of meditation for over 2,000 years in the Jewish community for even longer. And when we talk about mindfulness in a secular age, we basically say by being still and by practicing this discipline, you can be aware of yourself. Very different from Christian meditation, which is becoming aware of the presence of God. Can you see how some of these practices are trying to extract Christ from the center of the story? I read an article during lockdown in The Guardian. Fascinating. And it was basically saying a day a week we should turn off our devices and have a day of rest. Like they just discovered the Sabbath. Like we've just come up with this idea, a day of disconnection. It's, it's good for human flourishing. You're like, Wow. Like the Jewish community, Christians have been practicing this for millennia, but great that you've discovered it too. And the article said, by practicing this discipline, you become aware and present to yourself. What is the Sabbath about? Being aware of the presence of God. Yes, being present to yourself, but more than that, being present to the person of Jesus. All of these practices, extracting Christ from the center of the story. I I watched a TED talk. This just made me laugh. Um, I was frustrated at the same time. Um, But it was basically this lady saying there are certain postures that give you a can-do mentality. So if you're going into a big job interview or a moment of pressure, don't sit in the waiting room like this, making your body small. 
because that posture doesn't help breed a can-do mindset. She basically said, what you need to do is this. It's like, yeah, Christians have been doing that for a very long time. It's called worship. And what does that posture sort of like breed? And the answer isn't a can-do mentality, but God can do it mentality, right? So we need to wake up to the fact that what we're seeing right now, and it's entering the church, which is why I want to name it, is spiritual formation without undivided devotion. And we need to say, no, at front and center of what it means to be a holy people is we're undivided in our devotion to Jesus. So this is our story. You may have seen this one or two times before. Um, but this is the story of the kingdom of God. Creation, created order unraveling through sin, and then salvation bringing about a new creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. No Notice what's front and center. God. God, front and center of the story. In the Enlightenment, a number of thinkers basically said, look, we really like the shape of the Judeo-Christian story. We like that it has a beginning. We like that it has a, a progress towards perfection, towards this utopian vision. We just don't want Christ to be the center of the story. So we're going to displace Christ from the center of the story. And we want to put the rational, autonomous self at the center of the story. We want to be the center of the story. But notice the language. It's all from the Judeo-Christian story. The dark ages leading to the enlightenment. What did they say of Jesus? Those walking in darkness have seen a great. Jesus said, I am the Good. It's always going to be light, by the way, if I do another one. I am the light of the world. In other words, Jesus is the one that, that enters the darkness and brings about the light. Notice the language of Renaissance, French word meaning rebirth, right? That's John chapter 3. Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus saying, if, if you want to experience the life of the age to come, you need rebirth. You need to be born again of the Spirit. The Enlightenment thing is like, yes, I like that. But we don't want a rebirth by the Spirit. We want a, a rebirth through human endeavor, through technology. We want to be the masters of our own destiny. The reason I highlight this is because I think for many people it's disorientating. This story like, looks like Christianity and sometimes sounds like Christianity, but it is fundamentally not Christianity. And what is the litmus test? If Christ isn't the center of the story, it is not the kingdom story. If the cross is not the center of the remedy, it is not the kingdom remedy. It might look Christian in its shape and it might sound Christian, right? Some of the secular remedies to the ills of our age. If Christ isn't the center of the story, it is not the kingdom story. We need to wake up. If we want the kingdom... Here's the key. We want the kingdom, right? Just checking, like, people are looking anxious. I think I do. I, do, do I? Yeah, yeah, I think I, think, I, I think I do want the abundant life that's found in Christ Jesus. If you want the kingdom, the key to that is undivided devotion to the king, right? If you haven't got that bit in place, you can forget all these spiritual practices, right? The foundation is undivided devotion to the king. That's how we find fullness of life. So loving God leads to the kingdom. Seek first the king. Guess what? You get the kingdom. But as we regularly say here at KXC, misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives. You just direct your desires slightly away from the king and suddenly life begins to fall apart. Or to borrow language from Augustine in the fifth century, he said this, disordered loves 
lead to disordered lives. You might have some really good desires, right? But if they're in the wrong order, it's going to lead to a disordered life. This was Augustine's way of saying, like, here's how you manage your desires. You manage your desires by ordering your desires and Jesus comes first. You get that bit wrong, everything else falls apart. You can be doing all of these amazing disciplines if Christ isn't the center of the story. They are empty of joy. They are empty of power. He put it like this. Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. The paraphrase has become love God and do what you like. Which sounds brilliant as an ethical framework. Love God and do what you like. You got it. But what he was really trying to say is if you really love God, then all these other desires about your sexual fulfillment and your pursuit of reputation and tasting success and accumulating wealth, if you really love God, all of those will come second, third, list goes on. And your love for God will transform those desires and point them in the direction of the kingdom of God. This is a key question for us at a time like this. Who comes first? Like genuinely, when it comes to your desires, if you were to do an audit of your desires, like what comes first? Is it Jesus? We might sing it on a Sunday, but is it genuinely Jesus? We manage our desires by ordering our, our desires. So what does undivided devotion to Jesus looks like? It's a whole life thing, right? It looks like how we do relationships, how we do marriage, how we do singleness, how we do dating, how we go about our careers, how we do parenting, like how we spend our money, how we engage in politics, all of it. It looks like all of it. But I want to zoom in on one thing, what it looks like in the gathered setting like this in the church. What does undivided devotion to Jesus look like in the gathered context? Now We gathered um, on Wednesday and Thursday. Put your hand in the air if you were part of those worship nights. Um, the songs are going to be released in a few weeks, maybe months' time. Um, but what you will hear when these songs come out is undivided devotion. They, they, the two nights were totally extraordinary. I missed the first one because I had COVID. I'm recovered, by the way. Um, testing negative. Um, but I can make the second one because I tested negative. Um, <laughs> extraordinary just this sense of hearts on fire with love for Jesus what does it look like let me share a few reflections I want to borrow from the work of Gary Chapman an American um, pastor psychologist who's written this book he might be Canadian actually I can't remember anyway um, called the five love languages put your hand in the air if you've either read or heard of this book now you you know this in the American church particularly um, when you get a good idea you milk it for all it's worth, right? <laughs> so what we have is the five love languages for singles and the five love languages for married couples and the five love languages for your kids and the five love languages for your pets. How do you love your pets well? I mean, there are the five love languages. And he had a good idea, so bless him. I, I back that. He had a good idea. What he didn't do, and there's a, a gap in the market, and I'm going to step right into it. It's talking about the five love languages of worship. He missed it. It was right there on a plate and he missed it. Um, But I want to look at the first two because I I believe they're of critical importance when it comes to undivided devotion to Jesus. First one, words of affirmation, finding our voice. We are made in the image and likeness 
of a God who creates through speech, who says, let there be light, and there is. I said the answer would always be light. Um, <laughs> he said, let there be light, and there was light. And we're made in his image and likeness. In other words, when we speak, there's power in our words to transform situations. You know, the scriptures say that the tongue has the power of life and death. When, when you crush someone with your words, you can bring about a form of death. You can. Be really careful with your tongue. Be really careful with your tongue. But you know your tongue also has the power to bring about life. So imagine when the gathered people of God, empowered by the spirit of the living God, begin to proclaim truth into the atmosphere. Imagine what that does to the environment, to the atmosphere. Imagine that, right? That's transformative. Imagine the difference between reading lyrics on a screen and thinking, yeah, good turn of phrase, I like it. Oh, nice theological reflection. Good rhyme, I wouldn't have thought of that rhyming word. That was lovely. Uh, imagine that moment where you read lyrics and you're just giving mental assent. Imagine the difference between that, knowing that we're made in the image and likeness of a God who creates through speech. Imagine actually using your tongue to proclaim truth into the atmosphere. Do you notice the difference? Like, through our worship, when we actually use our voices to welcome the kingdom of God, guess what? The kingdom of God breaks in. Like, I want to be a part of a church community where everyone finds their voice. You may be out of tune. Do not care. Right? You might be singing in a different language. It doesn't matter. Let's find our voice to declare the praises of God. It transforms the atmosphere. Here's a, a truth we see time and time again in Scripture. That breakthroughs come as God's people proclaim his praises. I, I honestly believe this. That there are breakthroughs we don't step into because we never found our voice in praise. I believe that. Because our words have the power to bring about life. Let me give you some examples. Jericho. Um, they march around Jericho for seven days. On the seventh day, they march around it seven times and they raise a shout of praise. And the walls come tumbling down. Good audience participation. I wasn't expecting that. You're just really getting into the flow of it. I like that. So the walls come tumbling down. There we go. The answer wasn't like that time. It was tumbling down. Um, but it's because they lifted their voice in praise. Notice that? Think of this story, 2 Chronicles 20. Um, the nation of Israel find out that three vast armies are clubbing together to come against them, to destroy them. Now, King Jehoshaphat finds out, he gathers his military advisors, they consult, and then they gather the nation together to let them know what the plan is. And this is the plan. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us, and we do not know what to do. Now imagine you heard your commander-in-chief, the, the kind of like whispers had spread, three vast armies clubbing together to annihilate us, and then your commander-in-chief gathers, gathers everyone and says, look, we've consulted with all the key military advisors. So here's our conclusion. We have no power to face this vast army. And just in case you're getting stressed, it's worse than that. We have no idea what to do. Now imagine that moment, like panic, genuine raw panic. But there's six words that change everything. But our eyes are on you. Those six words genuinely change everything. Do you ever face moments like that where you're like, there's these vast things coming against me and I really don't know what to do? Is that followed by six words? But my eyes are on you. 
Because those six words change everything. A prophet then speaks to the nation and says this, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go and face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. Here's the encouragement stand your ground. This is a spiritual principle that we take ground in the kingdom when we stand our ground. We do the standing, God does the advancing. It's his battle. So you stand your ground. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. He says, put on the armor of God. And then he says, and stand your ground. Don't get cocky thinking you got this. Even if you stand like that, you haven't got this. But God has got this, right? So yes, praise, recognizing that God has got this. This battle belongs to him. This isn't a passive standing. This is a standing on the foundations of the character of God. In the midst of the standing, we worship him. So what happens in the story? They go into battle and King Jehoshaphat says, we're going to send the worship team at the front of the army. Um, and they're going to sing, and, and we think that's our best strategy. Um, and they go into battle. The worship leaders sing a simple refrain. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. And through their worship, they engage in warfare, and they overcome the vast armies. They find their voice in praise. Here's my encouragement. Always be attentive to the songs we're singing in church. Always be attentive. What are the key themes? More often than not, they are the soundtrack to what the Spirit is saying to the church. What songs are we singing right now at KXC? I'm not going to sing them for you. Um, but there's a major theme on hope. Even in these songs that we've recorded last week, hope has arrived and he has a name, Jesus. Hope is coming. Like so many songs about hope. But let's go back two and a bit years to the beginning of the pandemic or just before the pandemic. What are the songs that we were singing? You know the kind of songs that we sing them so much that we begin to hate them? You know those songs, right? We all have those songs. You're like, oh, I used to love this song. Not now. Not now. What were the songs? I'll raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemy. I'll raise a hallelujah, louder than the unbelief. I'll raise a hallelujah, my weapon is a melody. I'll raise a hallelujah, heaven comes to fight for me. What do you think the Spirit was saying to the church? You might not be aware of this, but something big's coming. It's going to be hard. It's going to feel like a real challenge. It's going to be a battle. But here's how you get through the battle. Worship. Here's how you get through the battle, worship. And just in case we weren't getting it, we, we were singing this one. There's a table you prepared for me in the presence of my enemies. It's your body and blood you shed for me. This is how I fight my battles. My weapon is praise and thanksgiving. This is how I fight my battles. It may look like... That was horrible. <laughs> that was horrible. If you're watching on the live stream, I just apologize. I want to apologize. We're going to give that one more go. It may look like much better. Did you pick that up? That was beautiful. Um, what do you think the Spirit was saying to the church? Psalm 23, that you might end up in a dark valley and it might feel like you're surrounded and hope might feel hard to come by. But here's how you walk through a dark valley. This is God, a shepherd, saying there will be green pastures 
and there will be still waters. There will be a replenishment for your soul. But here's how you get through. You take the hand of the good shepherd. Like praise and thanksgiving, that's what's going to get you through this moment. We didn't just think those lyrics. We sang them. And those of us that chose to sing out those truths were transformed by those truths and encountered hope. There are breakthroughs we don't step into because we don't find our voice in praise. I want to encourage you, if you're part of KXE, can we find our voice in praise? This morning, the worship was beautiful because we could hear one another sing. Absolutely stunning. Second love language, physical touch. Listen to the psalmist. Lift up your hands. Psalm 47, clap your hands very loudly. That's my addition. Verse uh, Psalm 95, let us bow down. I think there's a psalm about wolf whistling in the, in the message translation as well. So this isn't what the crazy charismatics do, by the way. You might be thinking, oh, yeah, charismatics, they clap. And, and they sometimes lift their hands. And, and when it's a real moment, they bow the knee. This is what the people of God have been doing throughout history. Right, Because the people of God throughout history haven't actually bowed the knee to enlightenment thinking that basically says we're rational beings. We have bodies to transport our minds around. The people of God throughout history have recognized we are integrated beings. Heart, soul, mind, strength. And there's worship we do with our lips and there's worship that we bring with our hearts. But there's a worship that we bring with our bodies. And it's transformative. It transforms us. Postures in worship are incredibly important. Psychologists sometimes say that emotion is energy in motion, right? So emotion is energy moving through your body. So when you feel deep sadness, guess where the the movement is? It's downwards towards the ground. And your body begins to do that, right? And fear is energy that moves Outwards, dissipates in every direction. And joy is motion that moves upwards through the body. When kids are happy, they can't help themselves. When your team scores a goal, you can't help yourself. Woo! That's joy. Literally, it's moving in your body. When your team scores a late winner, it's hard to be like, whoa. (laughs) Have you ever seen someone celebrate and go, yeah? No one does it because there's a movement in the body. Now, this is a gesture, but if you do it again and again and again, it creates a posture, a whole body shape and a way of engaging with your surroundings. Here's two truths. Our postures reflect our surroundings. They tell the story of what we've been through. So if you've been through a season of despair, and many of us have, that, the story will be told in your body. If you felt this downward movement again and again, over time, your posture will become smaller and it will move towards the ground, right? But that's not the only truth. Our postures transform our surroundings. They tell the story of what is to come. So even in a moment of hardship, if you choose to worship God for who he is, and because you know the end of the story, that Christ is coming back to finish what he started, and there'll be no more death or grief or crying or pain. He's going to make all things new. If you believe that, Thomas Merton, the Catholic writer, said, our lives are shaped by the end we live for. If if we're living in light of eternity, you can even worship in the midst of struggle. You can experience joy in the midst of hardship. And when you keep doing it, and when you keep doing it, it creates a posture. And that posture enables you to engage with your surroundings with faith. Let me give you an example just before I close. Caleb. 
He was one of the 12 that went into the land to see what the land was like. Moses sent 12 spies. Caleb was one of them. And, and they come back from the promised land. And 10 of them have this mindset. Oh, there were some giants in the land. They will destroy us, annihilate us. There is no hope. Let's, let's find home in the wilderness where we will be hungry and thirsty and live without joy. Right, that, that's, that's, that's the mindset of the 10. And there's two, Joshua and Caleb. They come back. And listen to what, what Joshua does. Then Caleb silenced the crowd, the people before Moses. That takes faith. When everyone is saying something negative, to say, shut up! That's faith, right? It's courage to silence the cynics. Do you ever find yourself around people that it's constant cynicism? constant mindset of unbelief it spreads that spreads fast Jesus said beware of the yeast of the Pharisees he uses the metaphor about yeast around the kingdom growing but he also says it it spreads through the the cynicism and the hardship of heart of the Pharisees you need to silence those people at times so Caleb silenced the crowd and he said we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it there are giants But God is with us. This is the land that he's promised us. We will not shrink back. We will step forward. We can certainly do this because God's power is made perfect in human weakness. Now, a chapter later, it articulates something about Caleb. This is what the scriptures say about Caleb. He had a different spirit and followed God wholeheartedly. That's what set him apart. We might say he had a different posture. Everyone was like this. And he was like, we can do this. God is with us. And he was undivided in his devotion. Undivided, wholehearted in his worship. Only Joshua and Caleb of the 12 actually inherited and stepped into the land. Why? Because they had a different posture and they were undivided in their devotion. This is what it means to be a holy people, church. Can you hear this? Like, yes, spiritual formation. Yes, spiritual practice. But it's built on the foundation of undivided devotion. Let me summarize it with this again. If you really want the kingdom, you have to build on the foundation of undivided devotion to the king. Like when it comes to all these different desires in our hearts around wealth and comfort and security and significance and sexual fulfillment, which we're going to be exploring over the coming weeks. This big conversation around sexuality. These, these are really big conversations, but can we agree the foundation has to be undivided devotion to Jesus? If you want the kingdom, and I think we do, I think we do, right? Just trying to look for some nods. I'm going to keep going. I think we do. I I think we do. Then undivided devotion to the king is front and center. So when it comes to these war of desires, here's my encouragement. We need to learn afresh in this cultural moment what it looks like to love Jesus above all else. To dethrone all the idols, to worship Jesus as king. As we do that, I can guarantee you kingdom breakthroughs will follow.